0: Welcome to the Legal Download podcast, a rundown of the latest issues impacting your business from Kelly Dry. Thank you for joining us for part two of the Legal Downloads discussion of COVID-19 and the litigation and insurance issues. In this segment, we are going to drill down on some of the insurance issues that have arisen in the wake of this public health crisis. I am Matt Luzader, and I advise and represent companies in commercial disputes. Since COVID-19 emerged earlier this year, I have advised companies on a number of issues related to this crisis. I am joined today by two of my colleagues who will share their experiences and knowledge on this issue. This podcast is a continuation of part one where we covered a number of contract issues and complements our April 1st, 2020 webinar, COVID-19 Financial Remedies. A link to this presentation is on this site. Neil Merkel has represented clients in commercial litigation and arbitrations for over 30 years. He has counseled clients through insurance disputes that range from the millions to over a billion dollars. Neal is based out of Kelly Dry's New York office, but handles cases nationwide. And as you'll hear today, Neal carefully tracks legislative developments that impact our clients. Cameron Argettsinger is a true insurance coverage attorney. Based out of Kelly Dry's D.C. office, Cameron has represented corporate policyholders in a broad range of insurance coverage disputes, including coverage claims related to COVID-19. Cameron will share with us today his deep knowledge of insurance policies and the lessons that he 's learned over the past few months what, just give us an overview here here Cameron what what are you seeing on the insurance front?
1: Sure, well, by far, the most visible cases we 're seeing is this wave of smaller businesses for the most part suing their insurance companies on their business interruption or business income insurance policies. And and the concept is that their businesses have been shut down as a result of coronavirus, and they're seeking coverage under the business interruption coverage section of their policies. And what business interruption coverage is, is is typically a component or an add-on to standard property insurance policies. And property insurance policies cover you for physical damage to your premises, to your real and your personal property. And business interruption is a coverage that typically will pay you for uh, business income that you lose as a result of having to close down your operations as a result of uh, that same type of damage. So it's something that normally follows on to uh, to property damage that, that you've suffered and that's covered by insurance policy. And it applies to, um, you know, ensuing business income losses. Um,
0: it's interesting that you mention property damage. Is the presence of the coronavirus in, let's say, an office building or a, a store or something, would that be considered damage to property?
1: Well, that's the big question in all these lawsuits. Uh, One of the big hurdles for coverage for coronavirus here is that the policies typically require that there be some physical damage to property or that the suspension of operations in the business, which causes the lost income, that that suspension be caused because of physical damage to either your premises or physical damage in your area or your vicinity uh, that causes a loss of business. Uh, Or in some cases, there will be uh, interruption in your business because of the order of a civil authority in your area, uh, shutting down access to your location. But even then, there's typically a requirement that the civil authority's order be a result of some physical damage somewhere in the area. And so the question that, that comes up then with coronavirus, there's no question people are shutting down their businesses, and there's no question that they're losing business income, uh, but was this the result of some physical damage to property and there are arguments that uh, sure anytime there's a contamination on a physical surface or say contamination in the air uh, with coronavirus that's that could be interpreted as uh, physical damage it has to be cleaned it has to be gotten rid of and you certainly see the resulting um, you know effect the problem is cases that have come up in the past on this same subject, and we now have a few in the past from, uh, say, SARS and MERS and other uh, other uh, diseases and pandemics, generally find that you need to have something other than just physical cleanup costs. Because that the, the physical cleanup costs aren't what caused the suspension of operations. The reason operations were suspended and there was a shutdown is, is typically because people are concerned with with coming into contact with other people, and, that, and that's the fear, that's the concern that, that's driving the, the loss of, of uh, the closure and then the loss of business. So that, that's one of the main hurdles that is going to have to be cleared uh, in these lawsuits. Uh, the other hurdle is that most of these policies also require, or I'm sorry, most of these policies have an exclusion uh, for either bacteria, um, uh, viruses, communicable diseases, there's frequently some exclusion in the policy that says, regardless of whether there's physical damage, uh, there's not going to be any coverage for a loss that results from communicable disease or virus or something of that nature. And so, th- those are the two biggest problems that these uh, companies filing these lawsuits are going to have.
0: Now, it is possible to buy back an exclusion. Am I using the right term there?
1: Yeah, almost anything's negotiable. When you're talking about insurance and and that becomes a question of how much uh is the insurance company want to charge for it um so yes there are companies that have purchased um either by buying back exclusions say there's an exclusion on the policy that would prevent communicable disease losses Uh, you could buy that back for example and, and they would just strike the exclusion which would mean the losses caused by communicable diseases diseases are covered uh, or there are other policy forms that uh, other uh, companies may have bought that would that would expressly provide coverage for those things as well. Um, the hospitality industry, I know, um, frequently uh, will will uh, look for uh, specific coverages that will that will uh, cover against diseases. You can imagine a hotel uh, will stand to lose a lot of money when there is some kind of a, a, a virus or a. Uh, a disease fear that would stop people from staying there.
0: And I assume that those, uh, those exclusions are going to be a lot more expensive going
1: forward. Well, that's right. And what we're even seeing now is you had to, if you were going to purchase a coverage for something like communicable disease, you were going to have to pay for it because it's certainly not the norm that the insurance industry is going to cover those kinds of losses. Uh, so you're going to have to pay extra for that. But now, with uh, coronavirus, obviously, the exposures are are enormous. If an insurance company is going to put itself on the hook for your losses uh, that result from from coronavirus, uh, you can imagine the likelihood that people are going to suffer losses from coronavirus in the future are pretty high. And so it's going to price that risk right into the coverage. So, in fact, what we're seeing right now is a lot of insurance companies uh, are, are, are renewing insurance policies. Uh, you know, when when insurance policies expire, you renew them on an annual basis. And in the renewals that have started to happen since coronavirus, the carriers are insisting that uh, the new policy carry a specific exclusion on communicable diseases to the extent they didn't already have that or to the extent there was something that was uh, maybe a little bit ambiguous as to whether there was going to be coverage. They are insisting that there's something in the policy now that leaves no doubt that they're not going to pay. For coronavirus losses.
0: So, Neil, let me, let me turn to you and ask you, what are the state legislatures doing around this issue? I've heard that uh, some's going on in, in the, in the New, York, uh, New York Assembly on this issue.
2: Yes, New York uh, has a bill in the legislature currently, um, as well as several other states uh, have similar bills. Uh, so you have New York, New Jersey, Ohio, Massachusetts, and Pennsylvania all have bills. Louisiana had one and had been moving through uh, the legislature, but recently I understand it has been pulled, um, largely because of uh, resistance from the executive and certain uh, promises to you know revisit it and make it a better bill. But the bills that are going through in the states, I guess Maine, I've just named, have some characteristics in common. Uh, what they basically do is they rewrite the insurance contracts to remove the defenses that Cameron has just described in the litigation, which is that they only pay for business interruption if you have actual property damage or loss. So that's, they, they override that. And then if there's an actual exclusion that says, even if you can get around that, we're just not paying for disease-based claims, they basically remove those exclusions. Now, uh, none of these bills have been signed into law by an executive yet. They're all opposed by the insurance industry in the form of the insurance uh, underwriters and carriers. Interestingly enough, they're also opposed by the National Association of Insurance Commissioners. And the reason that outfit, uh, uh, which is really kind of an honest broker in the whole thing, opposes them is, is pretty obvious These claims are estimated for small business alone to run in the neighborhood of $400 billion plus per month. So if you were to make these insurance companies basically retroactively cover claims of that magnitude that they hadn't underwritten and hadn't collected premiums for, you would pretty much endanger the solvency of most of the companies in the industry. So uh, these are going to have some real tough sledding, I think, getting through the legislatures and signed by executives. If they do, they will almost certainly be challenged in court on uh, contract clause grounds. Um, so it's interesting. By the way, the the, the recent civil unrest has added a, an interesting dimension to some of these claims. Uh, because what you have now is you have rioting and some of these businesses that have been closed have had now actual property damage. And presumably that property damage will be uh, and will hinder their ability to reopen or to get ready to reopen. So you may see some back end business interruption claims uh, growing out of the pandemic that are going to be covered because you have actual pandemic as a I'm sorry actual damage as a result of these laws. So right now I would say the the legislation area it's pretty uncertain. Um, I don't think it'll eventually get through. What is a little more interesting is the movement at the federal level. Uh, Representative Carolyn Maloney's office has introduced a bill. And what that bill is going to do is called the Pandemic Risk Insurance Act. Now, this is a going forward bill. It's not meant to be retroactive to go back and get you paid for what you're out. But the idea is, is there ought to be a federal mechanism to backstop insurers to allow them to write this kind of coverage so uh, we can have some assurance, insurance system in the future. So that's kind of where we are in the, the legislative uh, uh, arena at this point.
0: So let's talk about some some practical approaches to force majeure clauses, uh, insurance coverage. And I think there's an intersection here, as you've spoken about before, of injunctions. Um, Neil, what's what's your opinion on, let's say, seeking an injunction to force your insurance company to pay up immediately? I've seen a couple of cases out there. Um, that uh, that have been brought against carriers uh, by the insured?
2: Well, I, I have real uh, trouble uh, seeing how they could be successfully pursued on any kind of uh, uh, general uh, basis of applicability with the average policyholder could expect to use it. Sure, that there may or may not be a unique or unusual policy out there with special language that will let you do it, but. I don't see it. As Cameron explained before and, and, uh, and I invite to do again, these issues that are litigated for these insurance companies, there's a hundred year history here. And even though now the pandemic is new, people trying to get paid you know, immediately because they really need it, because it really is uh, a super big emergency. Uh, it's been tried before and the policies do not allow it. Most Policies are written in terms of uh, indemnity, so you have to have a loss, you have to file a claim, and it has to be approved and paid before they have any obligation to pay you at all. Also, you know, at common law itself, at equity, uh, the whole concept of an injunction is that you have irreparable harm that money cannot remedy. And therefore, uh, pursuing an injunction to pay money is kind of an oxymoron. Uh, If money will make you whole, then you have an adequate remedy at law, and you have to go to law and pursue your claims in court. You can't get an injunction requiring them to basically capitulate and pay you before the case is heard. So I think there are a lot of stumbling blocks, and I I don't see uh, a likelihood of a lot of success there, You know, barring the unusual case and the unusual friendly forum or something of that nature.
1: Yeah, and one case in point is in Pennsylvania, a group of plaintiffs asked the Pennsylvania Supreme Court to exercise what's called its king's bench powers uh, over all of the other courts in the land, or in Pennsylvania anyway, and to effectively consolidate all of the business interruption lawsuits in the state of Pennsylvania and expedite the proceedings so that they could go ahead on a faster track than you normally would, would see. And the Supreme Court just dismissed that out of hand, and, and basically said, no, you're going to have to continue on the same you know track as, as everybody else.
0: That's interesting. So I think here, you know, if, if I were to give some you know advice, if somebody came to me and said, look, you know, I'm I I've got a force majeure clause, what are my what what are the steps that I should take? I'd first tell them, look, mitigate your damages, right? You can't point to the the, the force majeure clause that says, you know, now I can act You know, completely unreasonable here. You've got to review your contract language. You've got to look at the case law in your state and the facts of your specific situation. Because I think what we've seen here is there is not a one-size-fits-all, some proclamation that COVID-19 is an act of God here. It's going to depend on how the parties determined when they were contracting, at the time they were contracting, for the transfer of risk. Then, you know, I think you've got to check for your insurance coverage. you know, you got to talk to your, your professionals uh, like, you know, Cameron, Neil, look at the policy and see what's, what's covered, what arguments could be made. Um, and then you got to provide notice. Uh, and look, even if it's not specifically required in the, the, the contract that you give notice in a particular way, I think giving notice um, in, in the most formal way possible is always a safe step. Then I think that there's this aspect of negotiation and working. With your counterparty here, because again, look, we're going to recognize that a lot of these relationships are longstanding relationships. This pandemic, although it seems you know endless right now, it will end at some point, and these parties are going to go back to doing business together. So, you know, perhaps what you're going to do is you're going to change the performance requirements, perhaps perform at a later date, give some discounts. Um, just kind of working together on it because I, what I've seen in the cases uh, that I've handled um, that uh, the, the we're negotiating with the counterparty is initially there's going to be some resistance to it. Um, but at the end of the day, um, the, the parties want to work together. And what I mean by resistance is somebody's going to say, no, you need to perform under the, under the contract. Exactly. As um, I, I, I stated But then when it comes down to it, they're going to say, okay, well, I I still want to do business with you. Let's figure out a way we can make this work. So perhaps we're going to delay performance for six months. Perhaps I'm going to pay a little bit less. But you always have to be prepared to implement a litigation strategy. Which, as we've heard from Neil and Cameron, probably does not include seeking an injunction. From my experience, injunctions are expensive um, and and, and time-consuming in the the short term, and it is a very high bar to reach. And then I think the other point that we've got here is that if we're talking about sort of the payment of money on things as as a force majeure event, I don't have the money to pay, that's non-starter right out of the gate. Um, that the courts would be swamped right now if that was indeed a, uh, a, a defense to uh, to contract performance. So, uh, Cameron, uh, what, are, what, are, what are some of your final thoughts here on, on practicality when dealing with things from the insurance front?
1: Sure. Well, what we are telling our clients is it may be a long shot if you have business interruption coverage, based on all of the hurdles we just talked about, uh, but what, what's, what's going on in the legislative front and the potential for interesting developments in the litigation fronts, um, we're recommending that, that people put their carriers on notice of potential business interruption claims, uh, even if it is a long shot, and at a bare minimum to document of their losses from this period to the extent they they have business interruption losses the extent their business their operations were interrupted uh, on account of coronavirus Um, because it it may come to pass that there is some relief available down the road
0: so let me ask you this is there any downside to providing notice to your insurance carrier
1: there's really not not in this context and and what we're talking about here are are, commercial interests and they have commercial business policies um, there's sort of a, a conventional wisdom that's not always correct that if you make a claim and it's not a, a valid claim, your rates are going to go up uh, at your next renewal, um, and that's really more the case when you're talking about individual homeowner policies, uh, and it's less the case with with uh, you know business policies and commercial policies. Although you, you never can predict exactly what an insurance company is going to do. Uh, here, the upside to noticing your claim, even if it uh, has these these. Uh, challenges and these hurdles to overcome. The upside is that that there may be some development in the legislative front. Uh, there are several states, as Neil discussed, that are discussing these reforms. And even if these uh, laws don't pass, there may be other compromise resolutions that are reached down the road uh, by an insurance industry that is not eager to see these kinds of uh, these laws passed. They may. Uh, offer something in the alternative. And so you don't want to end up, uh, you know, having not made a claim uh, and then it being too late to make a claim or just have allowed too much time to have gone by. And by the time you find out, hey, there is some kind of a remedy here for me, uh, it's too late to document what your losses are. So, you know, get together what your expenses are that you've lost, document what it is
2: and, and put the carriers on notice.
0: Wise advice. Neil, any last sage, uh, sage words of advice from you on this, uh, on this front?
2: Our advice is to just follow the events. The uh, litigation is too expensive and uh, too intrusive, and it will interrupt your business to too great a degree to undertake it now with the actual uncertainties that are out there. As Cameron mentioned, you can put your claim in, document your loss, and keep your powder dry that way. Uh, There are over 100 lawsuits now in the federal system heading toward a potential multi-districting. The insurance companies will fight that. The plaintiff's lawyers will push it. And the way the battle lines are drawn up is the plaintiffs think if they can get a big enough case going and get some momentum and some legislative and media interest in it, they can basically force some kind of settlement on the industry. Uh, The industry will fight that tooth and nail. Uh, I think right now they have the better arguments. I think right now there's not a lot of appetite to endanger their solvency. But just wait and see. If something is developing or things change, you have plenty of time to file. Uh the idea that you have to do anything right now in the next six months, it's it's unrealistic. So sit tight, wait. Uh you don't have to sue now. You can always file later. Um if you do get an actual note from your insurance company disclaiming coverage, I would say simply check your policy, make sure there's no time period running the sue, and check your local statute limitations, which invariably is going to give you at least two years, uh, and wait. So sit tight.
0: Very good advice. Cameron, Neal. thank you for joining me on this edition of The Legal Download.
1: Thank, thank you, you, Matt. It was a pleasure. For additional
0: information on this and other topics, Please visit KellyDry.com. Kelly Dry
2: has podcasts available through your podcast provider.